You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Warney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is the current second place on the trophy leaderboard in Dominaria. Was first place this week, but curse you, Matt Diesel. We've got <laughs> Ethan Sachs on the line. How's it going, buddy? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Yeah, I've been uh, just trying to keep. My name at the top of that leaderboard, and it's so frustrating to be like, all right, I'm going to bed, top of the leaderboard, wake up, and second place, and third place. But uh, we did we did hold that first place spot at one point, I think at two points this week. Um, so that was pretty cool. How are things going with you? They're turning around rapidly. I went on a huge heater at the end of the week, been doing a ton of drafts, got 12 drafts in or more, maybe 15 drafts this week. Ooh. Uh, I just went on a four trophy heater at the end of the week. So if we check in on the trophy leaderboard, I've got 43 drafts under my belt now. I realized midweek that you had more trophies than I had drafts done in the <laughs> format, which was pretty depressing. So I tried to get my butt in gear. That's good. Yeah. Uh, so 43 drafts, 14 trophies, 82 and 43 record for a 65.6% win rate that I'm going to, I'm going to round up to 66% and say we got there. That's great. That's a huge improvement. Oh my God. Format is coming together for me. Nice. Uh, so I've got 134 drafts under my belt, uh, with 40 trophies, 270 to 122 win loss for a, keeping that 69% win rate. Riding that every week. I didn't I didn't dip. I'm still I'm still so shocked. This is the first format in I can't remember how long that I didn't have my like week two dip. So that feels pretty good. Yeah, this format, you are that that win rate is insane, that trophy rate is insane. Like the fact that you have more trophies than I have drafts, like <laughs> a month into the format is disgusting. Yeah. I wonder if I'm gonna keep I wonder if I'm gonna get burnt out on it, but it doesn't feel that way. I really I'm really enjoying this format. Alright, so we have like always, a lot that we're going to try and jam in to this hour this week. But before we get into everything, we want to talk about our Patreon page. Uh, that's right, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash lordsoflimited, where you have the opportunity to give back to the show if you so choose. The show will always be free, um, but you can show your financial support if you'd like, and we try and give you some perks for doing so. Uh, the base level is access to the Lords of Limited Discord, which we talk about every week because it's so great. I mean, really and truly, we've got some of the best limited minds out there talking it out, hashing it out, talking about 
draft picks, talking about what's the plays. We're still reevaluating cards this deep into the format, talking about, well, what are we taking over these things? And it's really just a fantastic place for discussions of Limited. For some higher tier donations, you get access to our show notes, a really good written version of the episodes for you to like really hammer home some of the points we're trying to make each week. Uh, you can get access to a pre-show recording, get some behind the scenes features of how we make the uh, sausage, as they say. Uh, and the <laughs> <laughs> and the one thing that we do want to do every week is shout out our new patrons, show our love to you all. So thank you so much, these folks who have joined this week. Uh, Commanders Brew, Sammy, Johan, Matt, Nick, Dean, Matthew, Manipulate, Owen, Luis, and Russell. Thank you all so much. We really, really appreciate your support. Yes, thank you so much, patrons. And the Discord is getting to the point where, you know, when I go on there to comment, I'm just like, yeah, what so-and-so said about your deck? Or, yeah, what so-and-so said about these draft picks? Like, right. we've got some good players in there. Yeah, really, really do. And it's also great, like, on a weekend like this for GPDC to get to, like, a poker term, Railbird. Some folks get to, like, live vicariously through them, follow them. Like, I know BFC, who's a member of my Twitch chat, your Twitch chat, a lot of Twitch chats, is day twoing today so it's really exciting to like get to cheer people on and see them succeed at these uh high level tournaments yeah for sure all right so we're gonna start off classic lords limited style with a round table just ease right in to some discussions about the format so i had a really tricky draft yesterday uh that i thought would be nice because sometimes drafts go well and sometimes they really don't sometimes you get a, a bunch of clunker packs and i'd like to know your thoughts on how you would navigate this so how would you feel about taking a seat at the round table then Let's do it. All right. So pack one, pick one. You see the following options. Vodalian Arcanist, one and a blue for the one three that can tap for a colorless mana for instants and sorceries. Shiv and Fire, single red for the instant that deals two to a creature and has kicker of four. And if you kicked it, it deals four to a creature instead. Fiery Intervention, four and a red for the sorcery. Choose one, destroy target artifact or deal five damage to a creature. Academy Journey Mage, four and a blue for the three two that bounces an opponent's creature when it comes into play and it costs one less if you control a wizard. Wrath Capuchin, uh, that's two white blue for the 3 3 human wizard with flash and flying and gives all of your historic spells flash. And Knight of Malice, uh, one and a black for the 2 2 uh, that has hexproof from white and first strike and gets plus one plus oh if, you, if there's another white permanent on the battlefield. Yeah, this is a good pack, lots of options. I think. Quickly, I would narrow it down to Sheevenfire, Knight of Malice, or Wrath Capuchin. Mm-hmm. Sheevenfire is just better than Fiery Intervention. I think Vidalian Arcanist and Academy Journey Mage are cards I would not be happy first picking. Mm-hmm. And I think I would also pretty quickly eliminate Knight of Malice from that bunch. It's a rock-solid two-drop, but I think like the power level on Wrath is just way higher. And then Sheevenfire is a super flexible instant speed removal spell. Between those two, I could see a lot of people pros especially taking Sheevan fire they seem to be higher on Sheevan fire than you and i are yeah for me i think it's a good card i'm never cutting it from my deck but i think the power level on raft capuchin is too high i think blue white's the best deck in the format to the surprise of no one at this point i've been singing its praises for a couple weeks so i am slamming raft capuchin here yeah i think this is actually a multicolored card that i'm happy to first pick like there are some that you're like oh well i'll take it but i'm gonna be like very ready to move off of it raf is one that i'm like i'm taking it and it's gonna be hard to push me off of this like 
even if I don't end up in blue white exactly, like I'm going to, if I'm blue X or white X, I'm going to try and jam a couple basic lands in my deck or a skittering surveyor and a couple basic lands in my deck to make this splash possible. I think this card is just very, very powerful. All right, moving on to pack one, pick two. You see the following cards. Another Shiv and Fire. There's a Deathbloom Thalid. That's a two and a black for the three, two that when it dies makes a one, one Sapperling. Another Knight of Malice. Garna the Blood Flame, that's three black red uh, for the three three with flash, and when it uh, enters the battlefield, you can return all return to your hand all creature cards to your graveyard that were put there from anywhere this turn, and it gives all your other creatures haste. And there's a hinterland harbor, that's the green blue rare dual land. Yeah, this is like a rough pack to get past after first picking Wrath. Like there's no good blue or white options in the pack. Right. So of the cards that we're left with, I think Hinterland Harbor is a fine option if you want to leave yourself, like if you really want to try to stick with Raph for a little bit, leave yourself options to potentially splash down the road. Garna is a card that's been going up for me a lot recently. I've seen the power of looping Garna shenanigans on the other side of the battlefield a couple times now this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, have not gotten to do that yet myself. So that's on the bucket list. <laughs> Can confirm Garna plus Whisper Blood Liturgist is one of the most fun things to do in this format. <laughs> Uh, I think we can rule out Deathbloom Thalad because Knight of Malice is just better. Mm-hmm. But I think the card I would land on is Sheevan Fire here. I've very much liked Jeskai decks some flavor of, like usually base blue-white splashing red, sometimes base blue-red splashing white, but definitely blue as a main color. And I think Sheevan Fire is a fine splash for some cheap interaction. So I think I'd be looking to pick that here and pair it with Raph Capuchin and maybe we end up even moving off Raph who knows but I think I think she even fires the pick for me here yeah that seems like the maybe responsible pick um I did end up taking the the land here as we'll get into later and as we've talked about in previous weeks I'm very high on taking lands because I don't often find myself short on playables and uh, especially the dual lands are nice because providing fixing is something that is at a premium uh, in this format so I grabbed that here trying to keep the raft dream alive but probably just taking shiv and fire was what I should have done uh moving on to pack one pick three uh, you see the following options. There's a Fungal Infection. That's a single black for the instant to give a creature neg one, neg one until end of turn, and you make a one, one Sapperling. Caligo Skin Witch, one and a black for the one, three Wizard that has three and a black Kicker, and if you kick it, you get to have each opponent discard two cards. Ancient Animus, one and a green for the instant to put a plus plus one counter on target creature you control if it's legendary, and then it fights target creature and opponent controls. And Fire Fist Adept, four and a red for the three, three Human Wizard, that when it ETBs, deals X damage to target creature and opponent controls where X is the number of wizards you control. Yeah, this is another rough pack here for us. There's no blue cards to speak of, and I think you and I are really looking to play blue, so that's tough. Mm-hmm. Ancient Animus is not a card that's good enough to push me into green by any stretch if I don't have green cards. So, And we don't really have a black card yet. We've got Wrath and Sheevan Fire. So again, Caligo Skin Witch and Fungal Infection are not the type of cards that are going to push me into a new color. Uh, after just taking Sheevan Fire, I think this is a pretty clear fire fist adept for me yeah even without taking shiv and fire i think this is a clear fire fist adept it's something that gives me hope uh when it's third pick like it's tough to get signals in the first three picks i mean obviously tough to get signals in the first pick because you're opening that pack um but tough to get signals in picks two and picks three i think basically around four five and six is when you can start to see what maybe is is open for your seat or what the people to your right are trying to tell you to do but fire fist adept is quite powerful um even if you don't end up in like red blue dedicated wizards like i've often found that this just being able to like come into play if you're not 
full up on five drops. It's just like coming into play and dealing one, maybe two if you're like red black or you've got other red wizards floating around. Like this dealing one or two to a thing combined with maybe combat damage is still pretty good. And when it's nutty, it's just the nuttiest. Um, so yeah, I'm just grab adept here and be sad that I didn't take Shiv and Fire. We're already drafting wizards, right? Raph's a wizard. We got two two wizards and three picks. <laughs> two wizards and three. That's true. That's true. You're right. And, and oh, but this one doesn't have flash though. Pack one, pick four. You see the following options. There's another Vodalian Arcanist. There's a Syncopate, X and blue for an instant to counter target spell unless its controller pays X. And if it's countered this way, it gets exiled. Saproling Migration. Uh, one in a green for the sorcery it makes two one one sapperlings, uh, but if you kick it for four extra mana, you get four sapperlings instead. Wizards retort one blue blue for the instant uh, counter target spell, and this spell costs one less to cast if you control a wizard. And Sanctum Spirit three and a white for a three two with lifelink, and you can discard a historic spell to give it indestructible until end of turn. Yeah, I am thrilled to see Vidalian Arcanist in this pack. There would have been a time in the format that I would have felt bad about taking Vidalian Arcanist fourth. That time is long past. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just slamming that here. No consideration really for any of these other cards and really looking to be wizards at this point. Yeah, I think what's exciting to me about this pack is not only getting to take an Arcanist, but that I think where I'm at is if I'm in a blue deck, I would rather have Wizards Retort than Syncopate. And I think most of the rest of the world is not feeling that way. So there's a chance, I think, Probably not because this pack is so full of clunkers, um, but there's a chance that I could take Arcanist here. Another blue drafter scoops up Syncopate, and then I can wheel this Wizard's Retort, which would be the dream. But yeah, uh, Arcanist fourth seems good to me. But this is, so far, we're pretty much in line other than the, the time where you took a good removal spell and I took a dual land that I won't end up playing. But these packs are pretty weak sauce, it feels mm, like. Yeah, I mean, Vanillian Arcanist fourth is not great, but... There have been playables. Yeah, maybe. All right, so we, maybe one more pick here. Pack one, pick five. Uh, you see not many exciting choices. We've got a Voltaic Servant. Uh, it's two mana for the 1-3 artifact that uh, at the beginning of your unstep, you get to untap target artifact. There's a Rampaging Cyclops, three and a red for the 4-4 four, four, that gets minus two, minus O oh, as long as two or more creatures are blocking it. Keldon Overseer, two and a red for the 3-1 with haste and as kicker, three and a red, which allows you to steal a creature, untap it, gains haste until end of turn, and then you give it back to your opponent at the end of turn. But usually they're just dead once you've done that. I hate that card being in this too. format so much. I, yeah. I was talking to Twitch chat. It's a rare power level effect on a common that's like slightly overcosted because it's a common, but it's not even really that overcosted because games go that long. So you just randomly end up losing games to this common all the time. Yeah, it's not. It's a, I feel like and my brother was uh, in chat once because I was like, I usually I don't like this card. I don't think it's good, but I also don't like it because how much variance increases with this card existing. It feels bad the way Fight with Fire feels bad. Like, I shouldn't stabilize at 10 and be worried about losing. That doesn't feel good. I shouldn't have to, like, worry about leaving three blockers back because my opponent with Mountains has seven mana available, you know? Preach. Feels really bad. But also, I feel like it's balanced because a three mana 3-1 three is not well positioned in this format. Yeah, that's fair. But but yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying. But that's why it tilts me even more when I lose yes. to it. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> it shouldn't I'm, be in people's decks. <laughs> I'm totally with you. Like, yeah, your aggressive deck wants to get to seven mana? No, I don't think so. I don't know about, I don't know about all that. And I guess I'll 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 name this last card Homerid Explorer three and a blue for the three three mill giant enters the battlefield and target player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard. 
Yeah, this is a stinker of a pack here. Yeah. I think I would be narrowing it down to Cyclops or Homerit Explorer. Mm -hmm. And I think I would be on Cyclops here over the Homerit Explorer. Yeah, for, for reasons that we're about to discuss. The Explorer, though, a pet card of mine because I love the, the mill deck when it comes together, which is very rarely, but it is real. But oftentimes, <laughs> I'm in this terrible spot where like I neither want to mill myself or mill my opponent. It. and yeah. so i'm like very i was playing against someone who had fungal plots out and i'm like and, and the spore crown thalid the like sapperling lord i was like i can't mill them like i can't give them the opportunity to just like randomly get a couple tutus Ugh, feels terrible but that is what i grabbed here I, I was sort of feeling i was feeling pretty lost at this point i think the difference of not having shivan fire in my pile i think really made me feel like oh god what am i doing but i so i sort of just took the hammer explorer to be like well maybe We'll backdoor into like some sort of mill deck because I'm not really feeling like I'm getting any strong signals, but the Cyclops is certainly a better card. And this draft shook out very awkwardly. Um, I, I was not sure what signals I was receiving until it felt like it was too late, like a Knight of Malice wheeled out of our first pack. Whoa. And then a Deathbloom Thalid, and so then I finally grabbed the Deathbloom Thalid, and I was like, maybe I'm supposed to be black, which was certainly what I was supposed to do. But then we opened Zahid, Jin of the Lamp, the like five mana, five, six flyer that can be cast for four and tap an artifact. And that just like solidified, like, I'm going to hold on to blue for dear life and maybe play this Wrath. And I ended up drafting a pretty terrible blue-red deck that I don't know how it managed to 2-1, but it did. So thankfully I didn't lose too much value there. But yeah, that was a, a one of the toughest drafts I'd, I'd had to navigate in a long time. So I want to talk about milling in this format, but before we get to that point, you had a chance to play with a couple sweet rares this week, didn't you? Yeah, I did. First one was Precognition Field. I've only played this like three times now, I think, but every time I've played it, it's been very good. Uh, so all the decks I've been playing it in have had at least eight spells. One time I had 12 spells and it was just Ooh. absolutely nutso, but this is a very powerful card advantage engine like assuming you can stabilize you know it has all the drawbacks of like do nothing clunky expensive cards like you can't right. get run over but i think your odds of getting run over in this format are less uh i think aggressive decks are not as good so hence cards like this become better and when you have instants on top of your library that you flip up that you can cast for free this card feels like cheating yeah i mean you're playing with future sight in limited it's gross yeah, I, uh, I've had similar experiences. I've only played the card a few times, but it's been fantastic every time I've played it. Um, I think as long as you have like seven plus spells, you're probably going to be okay. And that your deck can, can survive for the late games. Like you've got some, some cold water snappers or other ways to just like rock solidly stabilize while you can wheel spin with this card. Um, I think it's really, really strong. Yeah. The other one I played with was the First Eruption. That's the saga that costs two and a red. First chapter deals one damage to creatures without flying. Second chapter, you add red, red to your mana pool. And the third chapter, if you sacrifice a mountain, you deal three damage to each creature. It was very good in a blue-red controlling deck that I had. Uh, so I had a ton of removal. This was a precognition field deck as well, I believe. And then most of my threats, I only had like eight or nine creatures, had four toughness. Like I had some Cloud Reader Sphinxes, I had some of the Rampaging Cyclops. So any of my creatures that I cared about winning the game with survived the first eruption. And it was a house in the deck. It was very, very good. Similar to, like it felt similarly powerful to, uh, what was the negative two, negative two to one oh, side of the board last format? Yeah, uh, Golden Demise. Yeah, it felt like that power level against certain decks. Like it just single-handedly won me the finals against a Blue-Red Wizards deck. Yeah, I think, so I, I've not gotten to main deck this card uh, yet, but I did 
bring it in from the sideboard. And I think it's quite strong against white green and black green go wide options. Um, I feel like oftentimes you're like, oh, I've got a radiating lightning I can bring out from the sideboard against those decks. But the great thing about this card is that it not only deals with the sapperlings, but it also can kill Slimefoot on the third chapter, which I think is very relevant. Like that's often the problem I have with like radiating lightning against dedicated black green decks is I'm like, well, I can kill a bunch of one ones, but then they just make more or they, yeah, they can just like rebuild their board. It doesn't, the one ones aren't the problem. It's the things that care about the one ones that is the real problem. So yeah, I think that the card, as we talked about last week as being something you don't want to include in your deck, I think that still stands for most of the time, but that there are situations where you're going to want to bring these in or perhaps start them in the deck. Yeah. The other point that I wanted to make before we got into the the meat of the episode this week is I wanted to take a look at milling. So I really often like to things that come up again and again in, in Twitch chat from streaming uh, each week, uh, I think are make good points for the podcast, because I think it means that a lot of people are having these questions or trying to figure things out. And that is who to target when you have the option to mill someone. Now, if you're in a dedicated mill deck, obviously that's going to be your opponent. But let's say you've got a card like Weight of Memory, the three blue-blue, draw three cards, and then target player puts the top three cards of their library into their graveyard. Oftentimes, you want to mill yourself, right? Because we think of that being the best case scenario because you don't want to mill stuff from your opponent because usually graveyard interaction exists in the format. So I wanted to look at every card in the format that cares about being in the graveyard or recurring stuff from the graveyard. So I'm not going to say what all these cards do, but I will list them. So in red, we've got Gitu Chronicler and Squee. In blue, we've got the Mirari Conjecture. In green, we've got Mending of Dominaria, Multani, Fungal Plots, and Nature Spiral. In black, you've got Soul Salvage, The Eldest Reborn, Memorial to Folly, Whisper Blood Liturgist, and Lingering Phantom. In white, you've got Excavation Elephant, Daring Archaeologist, Tashar, and Tragic Poet. And multicolored cards, you've got Rona, Muldrotha, and Garna. Okay, so a lot of cards that interact with the graveyard in some way, either being able to come back themselves or being able to recur things from the graveyard as you cast them. That's a lot of cards. That's a lot, right? So if every color has ways to recur things from the graveyard or they care about cards being in the graveyard... In theory, it should be right to always mill yourself to avoid giving your opponent incidental value, which I think is the default. I believe that to be correct most of the time. And so I often get people who are confused in chat when I target myself with weight of memory to mill myself three. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know my opponent's deck, but if every color has ways to get stuff back from the graveyard, even if some of them are just at rare, I, there's no reason for me to like give my opponent that incidental value. But I think there is something very unique about this format in that the games are very grindy. So if you have a deck and if blue is the best color and blue is the best color, I think because of its card advantage and card selection and opts and divinations and weight of memories or precognition fields or things like that. So if you have a deck with a lot of card advantage or self mill, you may very well be in danger of decking yourself. And those extra three to four cards that you mill off of a Homerit Explorer or a Weight of Memory can really be the difference between you having a few extra turns to win the game and not. And that has come up for me multiple times because I'm so very much in the mindset of like, I should be milling myself because I don't want to give my opponent the opportunity to get some some incidental value out of their deck when I mill them. So I think you need to know your deck very well and know like, Am I a super grindy deck that's going to be drawing a lot of cards and seeing a lot of cards from my library? And is that self-mill going to be detrimental? And the other question you want to ask yourself is, are you a deck with few win conditions? 
are you going to be, if you self-mill yourself, are you in danger of milling one of your only ways to win? Are you going to mill that arcane flight that is going to be the thing that's going to pop on your cold water snapper so you can start attacking your opponent in the air? I think that's another thing you need to be very aware of when you decide to mill you or your opponent with these cards. And this sounds like corner case stuff, but I think it's these are really, really important things to, to think about when you're drafting these kinds of, of good control decks. Yeah, so my experience in the format has been, like, I understand what you're saying, where, like, milling your opponent is a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. With the types of decks that I've been playing and the types of decks that are good, it's frequently these blue decks that have a couple turtles to try to win the game with. Mm -hmm. And I think that that deck is very real, and or just control decks that are trying to find a couple powerful cards. If you mill your win conditions, sometimes you just cannot win the game. Either when my opponent's been milling me, or I've had my own mill cards, I have not been able to target myself because I've cared so much about like two specific cards in my deck that I just didn't feel like it was worth the risk. So despite the fact that I know that it's a drawback to mill my opponent, I think I found myself milling my opponent more often than not just because I couldn't afford to mill myself. Yeah, that makes total sense. But I think you have to be you have to have a knowledge of your deck before you can make that decision or like understand how your deck is going to play out before you make that decision. This has also led me to, whereas before I think I thought of Homered Explorer as, well, I could just run one of these, and a 4-mana 3-3 body in this format is totally fine, and some blue decks really want that before you can get to your, your turtles on 6 to stabilize. But I've found it to be a pretty awkward card with that must-mill thing, because I don't want to mill myself, because I know those 4 cards are valuable both for potentially milling my own win conditions and for giving me time to win the game, but I certainly don't want to mill my opponent for the reasons stated before. So I've been often not including that in my decks. Makes sense. All right. So your win rate has skyrocketed this past week. And I sort of like briefly asked you like while you were streaming for your viewers, what things changed? Like what were the things that you were doing before or what things weren't you doing before that you're doing now that you feel like have added to your win rate? And you sort of like, just like Spitfired a few of these, right? Like real fast. And yeah. they were great points. And now you've given us like a, a pretty good top eight ways to up your win percentage in Dominaria that I'm really excited to just like rapid fire get out there for the listeners here. So what do we got at number one? At number one, we've got, and these are in no particular order, all all good, good tips to do things. Uh, number one is play blue if at all possible. So I think the three best decks in the format, in our opinion, are blue, white, blue, red, and blue, black, all of them base blue. Mm -hmm. And our most drafted commons and lots of other good MTGO drafters all have lots of the blue commons as our top commons. Like my top commons right now are like the Turtle, Vidalian Arcanist, Divination, etc. Yeah, top, top commons meaning most drafted commons on Magic Online, not top in terms of ranking. Oh, right. Yes, thanks. Yeah. Uh, number two, play 18 lands as your default, 17 as the exception. Um, you can play 17 lands if you have a lower curve or... Maybe more card draw spells like Opter Divination, but even those often make me want to play more lands because I feel like the only thing that stops me from winning is missing land drops. I, I think in my, whatever, 132 drafts, I've played 16 lands once, maybe twice, in like red-white assertive decks. But other than that, I think you want 18 lands as the default. There's card draw, there's mana sinks, there's memorials, there's ways to get two-for-ones like soul salvage or divination. All of those make you want to be spending mana every turn, so 18 lands sounds good for that. Number three, try to give yourself the opportunity to double spell with meaningful spells. So cards like Adamant Will, Merfolk Trickster, Sheevan Fire, Vicious Offering, Gideon's Reproach, Gift of Growth, Piercing Flight or whatever it's called, the Deal 7 to a target creature with flying. 
can have that main deck, usually sideboard, but if you pick good cheap cards higher and try to keep your curve lower, I just kept losing games with good four, five, and six drops in my hand because I couldn't double spell. So I just tried much harder to prioritize lowering my curve and giving myself good two drops to have a chance to double spell with on like turn six and seven. Number four, put cards in your deck that block well. We've been talking about this for weeks now. The modal 1-3s, Caligo Skinwitch and Gitu Chronicler. Vanilla 2-3s, even non-vanilla 2-3s like my boy Howling Golem. These are outstanding blockers in the format. This also lets you leverage your good instant speed interaction to blow out opponent. Um, because blockers have the advantage, and then if you've got mana up to, to protect something with a, a blink of an eye or shiv and fire or any, anything like that, any of those cheap instant speed interaction spells, that's going to just make your high toughness blockers even better number five be patient in the draft in pack one especially if the packs are weak Uh, so really try to find your lane and you're going to be rewarded we were talking about this you and i i skyped into your draft last night and we had a draft like this Mm -hmm. sometimes pack one is really hard and the packs are weak but i think in general if you find your lane you're going to see powerful cards over the course of the draft. It might not be in pack one. It might not be in pack two. You might have to wait all the way until pack three. But there are enough rawly powerful cards in this format that I think if you find the color pair that your seat's supposed to be, you're going to see good cards. I agree completely. I think that raw power level exists not only at rare and uncommon, but even at the common level with the fantastic removal that exists. So I think if you can leave yourself the opportunity to stay as open as possible in pack one, if it doesn't feel like things are going your way, like give yourself some lands to take, some colorless cards to take, some some fixing spells. This is another reason why I have Skittering Surveyor so high. I think that just gives you the opportunity to, once things settle out after pack one, pack two is going to show you the way. That's been my experience. That's been a big change for me. Early in the format, I was just getting so frustrated with pack one being bad because I would see people posting these nuts deck lists that they were 3 0 with. I would just mm-hmm. think, like, how are you doing that? I just don't see good packs. But I think if you find your lane and you're patient, you can get there. Uh, number six, flyers are great. Pick medium ones higher, like Avon Sentry and Academy Drake. Uh, and I think the caveat here is I would try to avoid playing Easter Glider because it doesn't block, uh, unless it's the perfect card for your deck, which I think is is less often than, than people might think. Number seven, format is slow, but you need to have the ability to consistently impact the board by turn three at the latest, or sometimes the game snowballs out of control. And sometimes this has the bonus of randomly turning into aggressive draws for you that's tough for your opponent to beat. So I've been playing been trying to play more cards in my two and three drop slot and again that goes back to the double spelling thing too those those sort of feed off of each other but you need to make sure you're impacting the board and number eight pick dual lands the sultai memorials and fixing higher than you are like i said i think there are powerful spells in this format and you want to be able to cast them and so that the ways you're going to get to do that is by grabbing Skittering Surveyors and Grow from the Ashes, um, and you want to play 18 lands, and so grabbing those Memorials are going to be great ways to add value to your deck. When you get to hit your land drops, play your spells, and then crack a Black Memorial to like rebuy something, you just feel like you're cheating a little bit. When you get to turn your lands into relevant spells and threats, you're really, really like gaming the system, I feel like. There it is. Do that. And your win rate's going to skyrocket. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not true. You still have to play games of magic. Oh, man, this format is tough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the other day I was like, oh, are you going to stream? And you're like, I'm fine just playing my games off stream. This format is hard. <laughs> it is. It's hard. All right. So we try and do these kinds of episodes once every format. 
They are tough to do, but I think they're important to get to, and that is the What's the Play Dominaria Edition podcast. Um, so we're going to go through a few board states, talk about our thought processes, and hopefully you'll be able to follow along and get some insight into how we're playing games. Yeah, and we'll have screenshots of all these board states uh, when you download the episode if you want to follow along on your computer or whatever at home and go yeah. back and take a look at them deeper in depth and see what you would do. Yeah, so we'll try and be as clear as possible, but we will not be saying what all the cards do this time around. All right, so the first what's the play I've got for you, Ben, is uh, it's game one of match one. You are a black-green, non-sapperling, grindy deck splashing for fight with fire. Uh, your opponent is on blue-white skies. You pushed through some early damage while your opponent spent a couple turns holding up some mana, so you think they may have a counterspell in hand, Syncopate or Wizard's Retort. You've gotten your opponent down to 7, and you're at 17. Here's what the board looks like. They have an Avon Sentry and a Voltaic Servant in play, and they have stolen your Mending of Dominaria with an Inbolus's Clutches. The Mending is on the second chapter. Uh, you've got a couple clunky ground creatures in play. You've got Knight of Malice, Skittering Surveyor, Elfheim Druid, a Sapperling. You've got a Blood Tallow Candle, and you are at eight mana currently with your Elfheim Druid, and you've got a, a Forest and your Fight with Fire in play, or in hand, rather. So here is my question to you. You've got a tricky spot here, right? You're out of gas. You could make a, a tricksy attack with your Knight of Malice into their stuff, but that's not really going to do it this turn. And their hand is full of action, we imagine, right? They've got four cards in, in hand. They have two lands in their graveyard from the Mending, which they're going to get back next turn. So they're going to have tons of mana available, theoretically. So you've got this fight with Fire. You can kick it. You have two mountains. But if they've got a Counterspell... You're just going to get wrecked, right? You, they're at seven. You can try and kick fight with fire to kill them. But if they counter it, you're basically done. You're out of gas. You have a removal spell in play with the blood tallow candle. But theoretically, they're going to be able to power you out with card advantage and with the threats they already have in hand because they have four cards in hand. So what are your thoughts here? Do you just fire off this fight with fire? Yeah, this is a tricky spot. I mean, it's tempting to just go for the win. But you're not, I think the important thing is to take a step back and look at what sort of pressure you're under. And you're under like literal zero pressure here. So right. the only thing that your opponent has that's pressuring you, first of all, your life total is at 17. So you can take a lot of hits from the Saban Sentry if you want to. Second of all, you have Blood Tallow Candle on the board to answer this Avon Sentry. And if you answer the Avon Sentry, the opponent has no way to pressure you at all. So if you get rid of the Avon Sentry, they're going to have to cast another threat to start to pressure you. So I think, like, rather than cast the fight with fire and potentially run it into Syncopate or Wizard's Retort, you're supposed to just pass, see what the opponent's up to, maybe kill the Avon Sentry with Blood Tallow Candle on your opponent's end of turn if you want to, mm -hmm. uh, and just wait for them to tap out and cast that fight with fire. You, there's no need to run it into a potential counterspell here. I think patience is the way I would go. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. Because, like, the the difference between you casting Fight with Fire here for the win and the difference between you casting it in five turns when, like, you're facing lethal for the win is very little. The only difference is you give them the opportunity to maybe draw a counter. Like, if you've pegged them for Counterspell and they don't have it, then maybe you give them the, the opportunity to draw it. So there's that argument. But the flip side is if you've pegged them for Counterspell correctly, you also give them the opportunity to misplay, to maybe go, oh, whatever, they don't have anything in hand, so I'm going to tap out this turn, and then next turn I'll hold up Syn I'll start holding up Syncopate for the rest of the game. But, like, it's very possible that once they get these two lands off the Mending that they're going to want to, like, dump their hand or something, and that'll give you the window. Or you draw something else that is they think is powerful enough 
to counterspell, and then you bait that thing out of their hand, and then the next turn you get to fight with fire. So you've got time here because you're at 17 life and you're facing down uh, very little pressure from your opponent. So that is what I did. I ended up waiting. I drew a, a Guardians of Koilos the next turn, and they ended up countering that, and then that that let the window open for for a fight with fire the following turn for the win. Nice. Yeah, felt felt good to like peg them for that that syncopate early, which I think is also important. Like if you're on turn two or three in this format and your blue opponent is like passing with mana up, don't forget about that. Once it's turn eight, if you thought they had counterspell then, they still have it. So think about how things have played out and have they like been leaving up mana sketchily? Have they maybe not been like curving out optimally? Then they may still have that card in their hand and you need to still consider that. Like that card doesn't, that card that you were playing around on turn three doesn't go away on turn eight. Yeah. All that sounds perfectly reasonable, and I think just the tight way to play that. There's yeah. no reason to fire. I'm sure, and I'm sure if you were streaming, Twitch chat was like, do it. Go for it. Do it. Go for it. What's, what, because either way, they get to see something awesome. They get to see you kill your opponent, or they get to see you get crushed, both of which are going <laughs> to be entertaining for them. Right, exactly. <laughs> Twitch chat is savages. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've got a good one here, I think. So you're a blue-red deck on the draw, and the first thing I've got for you is just a Keeper Mulligan. Mm-hmm. So your hand on the draw is Mountain, Mountain, Island, three lands, a Merfolk Trickster, double blue, Wizard's Retort, double blue, Tempest Gin, triple blue. Good God. And a Rampaging Cyclops. You're, you said you're on the draw? On the draw. Do you know how many blue sources you have in the deck? Uh, not off the top of my head. I think it was nine or ten. I think ten. Ten seven was the mana base. Okay, so with 10, so that's nine blue sources you can draw. I believe nine blue sources twice is like just under 50%. Um, And so that's giving us the opportunity to, we see we'll have two draw steps before we'll want to play Merfolk Trickster. And that's going to be pretty good if you draw a second island by turn two, because you get to play Trickster on two, and then on turn three, hold up Wizard's Retort, and then turn four, play Cyclops, or even Tempest Gen if you get lucky with the, the Runner Runner Islands. So I think all that is good enough to keep this hand, even though it's like seems a little sketchy. If you were on the play, this would be an easy mulligan. But I think on the draw, this is a keep. Yeah, that's where I ended up as well. Mulliganing feels so bad to me in this format Yeah, uh, that I was just hoping to get there. And it's game one. Like, I didn't know how fast or slow my opponent was going to be. And I think generally, I'm assuming like medium speed to slow speed about my opponents in the dark. So I, I kept there as well. But I could see mulliganing. I, th- I think that's a close decision. It's close, but I, th- I mullig- you're right. Mulliganing is just really feels bad in this format because games go long and each card matters. You being down a full resource is tough in this format. Okay, so we did end up keeping that hand. So fast forward a little bit. Uh, you're against blue-white, and your opponent got out to an early start against that clunky hand that you kept with turn two Mesa Unicorn, turn three Voltaic Servant, into turn four, tapping that Voltaic Servant to cast Zahid, Jinn of the Lamp. So you're facing down a turn four, five, six flyer with your clunky hand that you kept. From your opening hand, you drew Precognition Field, Cloud Reader Sphinx, and Partic Wanderer. Four drop, five drop, six drop, no islands to be seen anywhere. And then on your turn five, you missed your fourth land drop, uh, drew an Academy Drake. uh, Sorry, rather, that was turn four. So turn four, you drew an Academy Drake, missed your fourth land drop, and played that Academy Drake. Uh, because that was the only thing that you could cast out of your hand. So your hand is now Trickster, Retort, Cyclops, Djinn, Precognition Field, Cloud Reader Sphinx, Partic Wander, and you're tapped out with that Academy Drake on the battlefield. It's your opponent's turn five, 
and they're attacking you with all three of their creatures. They're attacking you with Mesa Unicorn, Voltaic Servant, and Zahid, Jinn of the Lamp. They're at 24. You're at 16. What do you do? I mean, right-click concede? Is that, <laughs> is that an option? I wish that was an option. We're going to duke it out here. All right. So I think you just have to trade off here. I think there's, like, something tempting about blocking the Voltaic Servant because it leaves, like, you take one extra damage that way, but you leave yourself a blocker. But I'm pretty sure that things are going to snowball too quickly here, and you just have to leave yourself as many turns as possible and just trading off with a 2-2 and hoping they don't have a combat trick here. But, like, if they have a combat trick here, you're just dead anyway. So I would just put the drake in front of the unicorn and then hope to have some draws shake out in in the next couple turns. Yeah, I think that's the correct play as well. I don't think that one's super tricky. That's the play I made as well, but it's setting you up here for this this next turn. I just wanted to sort of set the scene where this is the real, really tough play, I think. So following your block on Mesa Unicorn, you traded. Your opponent played a Relic Runner. So you're now staring down a board of Voltaic Servant, Relic Runner, Zahedjin of the Lamp from your opponent. You're at 10 life on your turn five. You draw that island. Thank God. Finally. What is the play here? Opponents at 26, you're at 10. You've got Trickster, Retort, Cyclops, Precognition Field, Cloud Reader Sphinx, and Partic Wanderer. We also have the deck list here for you. So as soon as my opponent played Zahid, Jinn of the Lamp, I immediately took a look at my deck to see what ways I had to kill Zahid, Jinn of the Lamp. Options were Blink of an Eyeing it and trying to counterspell it, or Deep Freeze. Those were the only two hard answers I had to Zahid Jinn of the Lamp. All my other removal was damage-based and was red, which we've talked about being a drawback of, of the red removal. Mm-hmm. So really my only out is Deep Freeze, which I don't have in my hand. That makes me... I mean, I guess you could... So here are your options, right? You can play Merfolk Trickster in there, like beginning of combat step, to tap down Zahid, which buys you a turn against that card. And then maybe you trade your Trickster off for Relic Runner, and maybe not. So that gives you, theoretically, what, three more draw steps at Deep Freeze before you die? Two more draw steps at Deep Freeze before you die? Two more, I think. The other option is to play Rampaging Cyclops this turn, which uses all your mana. Hope your opponent doesn't have a Historic spell. So that then what they do is they just attack with Zahid. You go to five. You're 4-4 holding back the 1-3 and the 2-1. And then the following turn... You can, on their attack, when they go to attack with Zahid for lethal, you can cast Trickster to remove flying from it and double block to kill Zahid. And I think that's the, because like, otherwise you're like basically playing to just draw Deep Freeze. Whereas this, yeah, this, this gets interrupted if they have Historic Spells, because that makes Relic Runner unblockable. But that still doesn't kill you. It does put you to a precariously low life total, but it doesn't kill you. And I think you just have to, like, my thought process would be, look at what I have in my hand. How can I set up a way to deal with this bomb? And that is the way that you have to deal with that bomb. Yeah, I totally missed that. So I was so stuck on, I'm dying to the Zahid, looking at my deck to -hmm. see what answers I had in my deck. Because on Magic Online, I always screenshot, and I think you do too, screenshot your deck and then go back and look at it for reference. Yeah. And so I looked at my deck... And I was seeing Deep Freeze, and I was thinking, okay, I got to draw Deep Freeze. So my thought process was, I need to buy time to draw Deep Freeze. And I didn't look at my hand and see if I had the tools in my hand to answer Zahid. And turns out I did. like The Rampaging Cyclops plus Merfolk Trickster line you talked about. Mm -hmm. And after I played the Merfolk Trickster, I did what you did, said. I tapped down Zahid, traded with Relic Runner. I thought, huh, 
I bet if I'd played Rampaging Cyclops and then like tried to trickster, I could have killed Zahid. So if I'd just taken more time, I think, to look at my hand and see if I had the tools in my hand to answer that Zahid, I probably would have found that line. So turns out we ended up losing that game, but I did realize that line and made that exact same play on turn four Zahid, played a Rampaging Cyclops and nixed it with the Merfolk trickster to double block, and we ended up winning the game. Oh, baby. So you got got to... Uh... I got redemption. Yeah, a little redemption shot. That's great. I think there there is something also tempting about the like playing to the deep freeze out with Cloud Reader Sphinx in hand, because it feels like, well, if I draw another land next turn, not only do I get the scry two to find the answer, but I also provide myself a chump blocker for their flyer. But all of that is still just playing to one out and giving you what four shots at it, maybe five shots with the scries, but still feels feels worse than than just trying to get it with what's in your hand. Yeah, I think so. And I think the other thing that I realized finally about Merfolk Trickster, like in this very game, was that Merfolk Trickster is a great, flexible way to double spell. I kept thinking of it as like this, I kept thinking of it as like this bad two drop. And I kept talking in Discord about like, I don't get why Merfolk Trickster is good. And meanwhile, Ryan Sachs is just like talking about Merfolk Trickster being the best card on the planet. (laughs) I think I finally get it. Like that it's not a turn two play at all. It's something that you double spell with like on turn six, or you use it as a pseudo combat trick like this to take down a flyer. Makes total sense. Yeah, I think that's a really, really tough choice. It's such a bummer that you kept that that three lander and got punished on the draw. Feels bad. All right, we've got another one of your uh, what's the plays here to take a look at. So we've got a grindy black red deck against another grindy base black red green white deck. That sounds even spicier. Uh, We're in game three. And you've traded off a bunch of resources. So here are the life totals and the board state. So you're at 12, and your opponent's at 11. Your opponent only has lands in play. They've got uh, three mountains, two swamps, an isolated chapel, and notably a memorial to Folly, which is the uh, black memorial that can get back a creature from a graveyard. In play, you've got a Phyrexian scriptures on the second chapter, which explains the board being pretty clear here. You've got a Gitu Chronicler, which is now a 2-4 artifact, because it got the counter from the scriptures. You've got a Jousting Lance, and six lands in play, three mountains, three swamps. Your hand consists of another Gitu Chronicler, a Thalid Omnivore, and a Caligo Skin Witch, and a Mountain. Your opponent's notable graveyard creatures are Virix Bladewing, Garn of the Bloodflame, and Thalid Omnivore. And your Phyrexian scripture is going to go off next turn right you've just hit the second chapter so you're going to go off next turn to exile their graveyard but so we imagine that they're going to be grabbing some creature from their graveyard and it's probably going to be virix blade wing right so we can know that what is going to happen this turn is our opponent's going to sacrifice their memorial to get back virix blade wing they have three cards in hand so it is not unreasonable that they will then be able to play their seventh land and kick virix blade wing to get two four four dragons so we can basically know face up what they're going to do here right they're going to crack memorial end of turn and then they're going to play Virix to get two four four dragons next turn. So what do we do in, in this place, right? So we've got a 2-4 in play, we've got a Jousting Lance, and we've got some creatures we can play. What's the play, Ben? Yeah, this was a super tough situation because it was all face up. Like, And I felt like there was a correct answer, and there were so many variables and so many moving pieces that it was just really hard for me to sort out. So the opponent has seven untapped lands, four of which presumably are going to be like the memorial and three others are going to be used to crack the memorial, which only leaves three lands untapped for them. So there's not a lot 
that can interact like removal wise with my Gitu Chronicler for three mana. I don't think probably mm-hmm. anything really. Vicious Offering doesn't do it. Wizard's Lightning doesn't do it. I guess uh, the cast, cast, down. cast Down does. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm assuming that my opponent's next turn, they're going to be casting Kicked Varric Bladewing. And I think that's like a fairly reasonable assumption, like probably yeah. 80-90% chance accurate that, that that's going to happen. So steering that down, our life totals are at 11 and 12. I felt like I was losing because I knew I was going to be staring down two four four flying dragons, which is just like not a good feeling. Yeah. That's like a, a hard spot to be in. So I kept looking, you know, the opponent's only got three cards in hand. I could kick my Scaligo Skin Witch, but that doesn't solve the Varric's Blade Wing problem. I could kick my other Gitu Chronicler that I've got in hand and buy back either Vicious Offering or Fiery Intervention. That doesn't really solve the Varric's Blade Wing problem because I'm only killing one of them and then I'm still falling behind. That didn't feel great. So ultimately what I ended up doing, which I think was a mistake, was I just attacked with the Gitu Chronicler for two damage and I put my opponent mm-hmm. down to nine. And then after I did that, I was thinking about all this other stuff and I thought, oh, if I played Thalid Omnivore... You know, I can force them. I really was the aggressor in this situation. I could have played Thalid Omnivore and forced my opponent into a world where they needed to chump if I equipped Jousting Lance to it or if I just had enough creatures on the battlefield to threaten to sacrifice. So I think the correct play for this turn was to play my land, hit my seventh land drop, equip Jousting Lance on the Gitu Chronicler, play Thalid Omnivore, and hit them for four down to seven. And then they were going to be in a point where they needed to block with their Varric's Blade Wings. So like the yeah. best, the, the chess adage of the best defense being a good offense. Like I was supposed to be the aggressor here, but it was really tough to wrap my brain around that knowing that I was tearing down two four four Flying Dragons. So if you had equipped first and attacked, they would have been at seven. Mm-hmm. And then you would, what's so good about this turn also, the ability to equip and then play Omnivore is you get to use all your mana, which feels good. And you're, you now have two pretty decent threats, right? You've got a four four first striker and a three three so then the following turn you get to play you can like play both of your modal one threes as fodder for the omnivore as fodder for the omnivore and then they basically have to like block block like they have to block they like chump chump basically your four four first striker and your omnivore because your omnivore threatens lethal if they're at seven yes which is pretty gross. And then your Gitu Chronicler, they can't double block that because if they do, then they lose to Omnivore. But single blocking, it feels bad also. So they're in this like really awkward double chumping situation, which is pretty insane considering they just played Virix Blade Wing kicked. Yeah, I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I was supposed to be the aggressor. So while I didn't equip Jousting Lance, I still did end up playing Thalid Omnivore correctly, I think putting my Mm -hmm. opponent on enough of the back foot that I got the job done in like two or three turns down the road, as opposed to, you know, one or two turns more cleanly, like I should have. Yeah. But I think it's all face up because you know, they have to use the memorial this turn if they want to use it because your Phyrexian scriptures is going to go off the following turn. So they're forced to return barracks if they want to. And if they don't, great. Like, I think you're winning anyway. Right. That's how I know you can deduce that they have to return barracks. Very interesting. You don't often get situations in Magic where like, you feel like you have all the information to make your decisions. Well, and I felt like I could plan out my opponent's future turns too, which was why I, mm-hmm. took, I took so long to make this turn. <laughs> like I was seven minutes up on my opponent here in clock, and uh-huh. I, like, it was, I was only up like a couple minutes after this turn. <laughs> that's, that's why you, you play fast and efficient so you have the time to make those decisions. Yeah, felt good to come to the right answer there, even after not coming to like the completely optimal answer, like to yeah. suck up to not there was no sunk cost fallacy either, either there. I sucked it up, played my Thalid Omnivore and still still found a way to get there. All right. 
I've got another one for you here. This I think comes up commonly or not, not maybe this face up obvious, but, uh, so this one deals with facing down open mana from your opponent. So here's the scene. Uh, you're a blue white flyers tempo deck against a blue red wizards deck splashing white in game one. Both players have developed a little bit. It's turn five. Your side of the battlefield is a Banalish Honor Guard, the 2-2, and a Pegasus Courser, the 1-3 Flyer, that can jump that into the air. And you're staring down on the other side of the battlefield, an Adele and Adelise, that is, for those of you, <laughs> for those of you that don't watch Ethan's stream, uh, and Rampaging Cyclops, that 4-mana four 4-4 four, four, on the other side of the battlefield. The opponent's at 15, you're at 14, you hit your fifth land drop this turn with four planes and an island, and your hand contains the following cards. Two on Sarah's Wings, Academy Journey Mage, and Pegasus Courser. Uh, your opponent's tapped out. Their Adelise is tapped from attacking you. Life totals, they're at 15, you're at 14. What do you do here? So I like them being the most mana efficient and the most tempo positive, which is just casting Journey Mage, bounce their Cyclops, uh, which basically time walks them, and then attack for three with your Courser and your Honor Guard. Yeah, that was exactly what I did. I think that play is like fairly obvious, but that sets us up for the next turn, which is mm -hmm. really, really interesting. So you attack your opponent down to 12. Here's the next scene. Your opponent missed their land drop on their next turn, attacked you with their Adelies, and did not recast their Rampaging Cyclops. So they passed the turn with four open mana, Island, Island, Plains, Mountain, didn't recast that Cyclops, it's your turn six. You drew a planes for the turn. So your board is now Banalish Honor Guard and Pegasus Courser. You added that Academy Journey Mage. You've got two on Sarah's Wings in hand and a Pegasus Courser. Life totals are tied at 12. What's the play here? All right, so this is pretty gross because you know they have some way... They've missed their land drop, but they haven't deployed the Cyclops. So they have at least one thing to do at instant speed, potentially multiple things because that flexibility is better than playing the Cyclops. So whatever they want to do on your turn is better than just playing a 4-4. Four four. Which feels bad because a 4-4 four four is pretty good on this board. Well, it's not great. It can't block like Courser or the like jumped Journey Mage. So it's not great. So they're, but they're in, they have Jeskai on board, right? Blue, blue, white, red. So there's so many things they could have here. So I think it's important to talk about what those things could be. So the things that come to my mind are counterspells, first off, but that seems less likely because if they were passing with just counterspells available, like Syncopate or Wizard's Retort, they would probably rather add to the board than pass with open mana because they're like losing on board, right? They're not going to pass with counterspell magic to counter something while they're taking six on board, right? So I think we can rule out counterspells as options for them. That leaves us with, what else? Gideon's Reproach and Seal Away, which... Feels, if, if you have them, they're blue, red, splashing white, you think? I think so, because of Adelie's and the Rampaging Cyclops. That's why I put them on that. So then, Seal Away seems more splashable to me than Gideon's Reproach, but you would you could splash both of them. Wrath Capuchin makes a lot of sense, uh, as both a splashable thing and something that you would want to play here, right? If we get Frisky and attack with our Pegasus Courser, they can flash in Wrath and eat the Courser. Yep. Red-based damage spells like Shivan Fire or Wizard's Lightning are not really things like we need to think about playing around unless we're going to deploy an On Sarah's Wings, but I, you're, you're a smart player. You're not going to deploy On Sarah's Wings into open mana here. Well, this is also Blink of an Eye mana as well, so I think Sarah's Wings is just totally out. Sarah's Wings is totally out. There's also Merfolk Trickster, our, our boy, the blue-blue 2-2 two -two that can remove abilities from things and tap them. So all of that, that's a lot, right? Is, is that Do we feel like that's everything? I think that's a pretty comprehensive list, yes. Okay, 
So with all of that, I think the on Sarah's wings are off the table. So we're probably casting Pegasus course of this turn and feeling pretty good about it not getting countered. So then the question is, do we have attacks here? And I think the answer is you have one attack with Academy Journey Mage. And you think if it gets Gideon's Reproach, that's fine? If it gets Reproach, that's fine. It's our only good attack into Wrath, which, so like, we're thrilled to trade Journey Mage for Wrath. And if they, like, cast Merfolk Trickster and block Journey Mage, that's also not the worst, I don't think. So I feel like Journey Mage trading with anything here is totally fine. Because the other thing is, like, if it's Wrath or, like, unlike something like the, you love, you love these attacking into open mana plays, like we did one with Divine Verdict in Rivals of Ixalan. And with that, you can really punish your opponent with passing with mana up. Yes. Here, with some of the things we've described, if it's Merfolk Trickster, if it's Wrath, they're still going to get to play that thing. Right. It's a lot harder in this format to punish your opponent for leaving up open mana. Right. In fact, I think leaving up open mana is actively good in this format. Well, yes, sure, maybe. But I think all of that leads me to believe that the attack with Journey Mage feels like I'm not going to get blown out. I will probably one for one. And if they are passing with Wrath up, that feels like the best way to punish them is to be like, well, you want to trade with my 3-2? Great. And then play Corsair post-combat. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I just had like decision paralysis here, and I knew something bad was going to happen. I think (laughs) (laughs) keeping Wrath in mind makes sense to me. I don't love attacking into uh, the potential Gideon's Reproach or Exile and Attacking Creature, but I think those are probably less likely than Wrath. I think the most like, well, I guess they're all equally likely. I mean, it's game one. We've not seen anything. But the attack with Journey Mage, it's not a key component of how we're winning the game. Although, like, it is a good creature to put on Sarah's Wings on. It's got our most power. But I could see that attack. I ended up deciding to pass and just play Pegasus Courser. And so what my opponent did was they cast Wizard's Lightning, targeting one of my Pegasus Coursers, and killed it. And they flashed in a Merfolk Trickster. End of turn. Wow. Okay. So they did have business. And then their following turn, they attacked me with Adelie's which I didn't block because combat tricks, you know, if I block with Pegasus Courser and they've got any instant speed stuff, I get owned. Right. And they passed with four mana again, missing their land drop. They still didn't cast that Rampaging Cyclops. So your turn seven, you draw another planes. So now your hand is on Sarah's Wings, on Sarah's Wings. You've got those same three creatures in play. Honor Guard, Pegasus Courser, Journey Mage. Life totals, your opponent's at 12, you're at 10. What's the play here? All right, so tell me if I'm like leveling myself here a little bit. Okay. Can we rule out Blink of an Eye? Uh, why? They've missed two land drops, and they have no reason to think that we would do anything. They have no reason to think that we're going to, like, play an aura, which is the, like, best way to blow out. So, like, if I'm an opponent, and I'm missing land drops, and my plan is to pass to just play Blink of an Eye, wouldn't you just do that main phase, like, bounce Pegasus Courser or something, to try and hit your fifth land? I don't know that you can come to that conclusion here. That seems a little... Really? Yeah... If you you're telling me if you're if you're the opponent and the only thing you have to do is blink of an eye, you're not going to do that. He would just play Cyclops, wouldn't you? Or you would play blink of an eye on your turn. Well, it depends on how much you need to hit land drops. If you've got like cheap spells in your hand, I think maybe the potential of getting a blowout is bigger. But what's the blowout you're going to get? Uh, us going for on Sarah's wings and you crush us. So we go for on Sarah's wings and you crush us. But there's, that's pretty, you know, it's game one. There's no reason to peg your opponent for that. But we also don't have to do anything. And then what, we just attack with Corsair and Journey Mage this turn and leap the Journey Mage and you bounce Journey Mage? Like, what's the big plan here with Blink of an Eye? Yeah, I, I guess. 
I don't know that, like, I know what your opponent plays here, so maybe that's what is leading me to go, like, can we rule out Blink of an Eye? But I really think there's something to be said there about they're missing land drops, and there's, like, no... There is nothing that makes playing Blink of an Eye on our turn better necessarily, except for what is exactly in our hand. Well, and what about holding up Blink of an Eye and Sheevan Fire? Like, we don't know what's in their hand. It could be so many combinations of cards. Yeah, it could be so many combinations of cards, and we certainly know that it's better than playing... Rampaging Cyclops. Rampaging Cyclops. Yeah, so here it feels like it's we're much less inclined to attack with a 3-2, knowing that it would just trade with a Merfolk Trickster. And playing on Sarah's Wings in open mana feels pretty bad. So I guess if I just like really wanted to go with my read that they don't have Blink of an Eye, I could fire off an on Sarah's Wings here, which also feels better knowing that we have two of them, because like we can't have two in play anyway. But all that said, I guess I'd probably just play land and pass. Um, unless I wanted to, to really go with my you don't have blink of an eye read. Yeah, that was that was what I ended up doing. I, I went land pass because I thought there were just too many ways I could get wrecked if I tried to cast on Sarah's Wings. I think the only other mitigating factor is that we've got two in hand. So I could certainly see now that I know that they're legendary. This was the game I legend ruled myself <laughs> with double <laughs> on Sarah's Wings. Oh, no. <laughs> Felt bad. Don't do that, ladies and gents. That's also a what's the play tip? Pleb tip, as it were. Pleb tip, Yeah. So yeah, I just think, and this sort of illustrates the problem with attacking into open mana in this format, especially if your opponent's like Jeskai colors, especially feels like there's tons of good instant speed interaction. I just think you need to be very, very careful if you're attacking into open mana. So what did your opponent end up doing? Yeah, they ended up flashing in Wrath end of turn, uh, and I lost the race in the air, partly due to legend ruling myself <laughs> with Onsera's <laughs> wings, but I think I probably would have lost anyway. But yeah, certainly tricky spots there, and I think those are all like very interesting this format has so much good gameplay. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, those those are the things that are great. Like those the mini games about like figuring out what they're they're passing with mana up doing, like getting to play around Wrath or Reproach or Seal Away or Syncopate. Th- those are those are fun little mini games in already complex games. Yeah. I mean, and there's also bad gameplay where your opponent just casts a bomb and wins, but I think the good gameplay outweighs the bad. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, next week We've got the Pro Tour coming up. So we'll have our patented Pro Tour draft review where we tell all the pros how much better we are at drafting than they are. (laughs) It's so good. I love it. Yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to doing that one. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. We also have our Dominaria treasure hunt going on. So if you get some of those crossed off, you can tweet at Lords of Limited and hashtag them with hashtag DOM treasure hunt. And if you're not on Twitter, you can feel free to email us screenshots at Lords of Limited at gmail.com. We've got 13 of the 15 crossed off, I believe. We're mm-hmm. waiting on Fall of the Thran and... What's that card that Phyrexian I cast? Phyrexian Scriptures. Yes, Phyrexian Scriptures. A mythic and a rare. Easy peasy. Easy. Uh, so get to work, everybody. And one other one. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. It's uh, Evra gaining you being 100 power. Oh, yeah. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. We made it really hard. We made it too hard this time around, I think. Maybe. But uh, whatever. We're, we're, we're still figuring things out. Also, are you really not going to accept my Taste the Rainbow no, achievement? I... <laughs> so you submitted one where your opponent conceded prior to you untapping to get an achievement i i'll accept it thank you <laughs> i just typed i said no on twitter because we've got a bet writing on this to where <laughs> that's right whoever gets the most achievements crossed off gets the first time slot in our 15 hour stream that we do to celebrate these achievements and the first time slot like being the first person to stream is infinitely better <laughs> than being the second better. person to stream yeah because <laughs> you just get to heckle the other person yeah while, while they're, they're exhausted, exhausted. yeah <laughs> yep 
So if you want to get in touch with us or check out our Twitch streams, I am at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We are both under those same usernames on Twitter. Uh, and you can also, as we said, tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 